and welcome to the History of Philosophy in India by Janardan Ganeri and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at www.historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, Under Construction, Dignaga on Perception and Language. Jack and Jill went up the hill. Their original plan was to fetch a pail of water, but these were idle and lazy children, so instead they wound up lying on their backs looking up at the clouds. They fell to arguing about one particular cloud, which in Jill's opinion looked like a crocodile, whereas Jack felt it was a dead ringer for a giraffe. A third child, named Liza, wandered past, having more conscientiously fetched some water. She resolved the dispute by pointing out that the cloud was simply a cloud. The animals that Jack and Jill were seeing were the work of their imaginations, or as it was phrased by Eliza, the giraffe and crocodile were being superimposed on the cloud. Actually, she added, even the concept of cloud is something we superimpose on our perceptions. So what is it that we are perceiving? asked Jill. Only something fluffy and white? No, replied Liza. Actually, the object of our perception is ineffable, and such general concepts as fluffiness and whiteness are themselves mental constructions. And with that, she departed. A smiling Jack said, watching her go, Dear Liza has been reading Dignaga, I guess, and there's a hole in her bucket. Liza's enthusiasm for Dignaga was well-placed. One of the most original thinkers in the whole history of Indian philosophy, he put forward ideas that transformed not just Buddhist thought, but also the theories of rival schools. Those philosophers who came after grappled with his ideas and with the reworking of those ideas in his great follower, Dharmakirti. Even their opponents subtly changed their systems so as to incorporate within them the approaches and distinctions they introduced. Tignaga's greatest work is the Pramana Samuchaya, or Collected Verses on the Sources of Knowledge. He wrote two short treatises as well, the Hetu Chakra Damaru, or Study of the Wheel of Reasons, a novel and innovative analysis of fallacious argumentation, and the Alambana Pariksha, or Examination of the Foundations of Experience, a work of just eight verses that offers a radical rethink of Buddhist ideas about perception. We'll start our multi-episode look at Dagnaga by telling you about this little treatise. Common sense would tell you that we use perception to grasp ordinary objects in our environment, like clouds, giraffes, and crocodiles. Philosophers are rarely willing to leave common sense alone, though. At the very least, they want to come up with a fancy name. So they call this straightforward understanding of perception direct realism. In the Indian tradition, direct realism was upheld by the Nyaya school. Admittedly, they were led to making some strange claims, too, that we can also perceive universals and absences, but in general, their point was that common sense is right. We do perceive whole objects, and not only, for example, the nearest surface of an object, or mere flashes of color, wafting scents, and momentary noises. Other philosophers prefer to revise common sense. Dignaga was one of them, which is hardly surprising, since he was a Buddhist, but he goes so far as to criticize earlier Buddhist theories as insufficiently skeptical. Here, he's following in the footsteps of Vasubandhu, who may have been his teacher, and further developing the Yogacara approach to perception. In his examination of the foundations of experience, Dignaga argues with great force that the immediate objects of perception cannot be external things, 
not even the fleeting atomic dharmas recognized in Abhidharma Buddhism. His argument goes like this. Suppose we are perceiving some object out there. The Buddhists call it the alambana, the foundation or ground or objective support of the perceptual experience. Dignaga says that this supposed foundation would have to be the cause of the experience. For me to see a giraffe, the giraffe must cause my visual perception. But this clearly isn't enough. If a mad scientist causes me to have a visual perception of a giraffe, then the mad scientist is the cause of the perception, but I am not seeing the scientist. In addition, my perception must match up with the thing being perceived. As Dignaga puts it, my experience should have the same form as that thing. After all, how could I be perceiving a giraffe if the thing I claim to be perceiving has the shape of a crocodile? Unlike Liza's bucket, this seems to be pretty watertight, as an account of what is needed for perception to occur. Dignaga is going to draw a surprising result from it, though, by showing that external things cannot satisfy his two demands. Buddhists held that clouds, giraffes, and crocodiles are made of atoms. And atoms do seem to be the sort of thing that can cause perception, so they would tick the first box. The atoms that make up a cloud do cause me to see the cloud. Yet, I am not seeing the atoms. Atoms are not perceptible, and even if they could be observed under special conditions, it is not atoms I see when my gaze falls upon a cloud. What I see is a cloud. So here, the second requirement is not satisfied. The atoms, the objects that cause the perception, do not match the perception in form. Perhaps someone will say that we don't see individual atoms, but rather a conglomerate of them, like the collection of atoms that makes up a crocodile. That should fix the problem because the conglomeration does have the form that matches the perception of a crocodile. Sadly, the conglomeration is nothing over and above the atoms, so it cannot be a distinct cause of my perception, and the first condition is not satisfied. An analogous case would be your perception of a forest. From a distance, you see just the conglomerate. You see only the wood and not the trees. Yet we know that it is the trees that cause your perception, because in reality, there are only trees to do the causing. Dignaga considers a third way that external things could cause perception. Perhaps it is not the atoms themselves, or a conglomerate of them, but some power or shape in the atoms. By virtue of this power, they can make you see, as it might be, a crocodile or a cloud. To stay with the meteorological theme, consider what happens when you see a rainbow. There is no real arc of color there. Rather, the rainbow is composed of droplets of water, each of which is helping produce in you a vision of a rainbow. This is a pretty interesting idea, but Dignaga makes short work of it. He points out that if the feature that causes the perception belongs to the atoms intrinsically, then the same atoms should still cause the same perception when rearranged. But when the airborne particles shift, you no longer see a rainbow. Which is to say nothing of the more radical recombination of atoms that ensues when a crocodile eats and digests a giraffe, with the giraffe's atoms going to make up the crocodile's body. It's not as if crocodiles who feast on giraffe meat start to look more and more like giraffes. Tignaga concludes from all this that what we take to be ordinary objects of perception are really only the products of the human mind. In fact, we perceive what he calls knowable interior forms. These internal forms both cause our experience and provide it with content, something nothing outside us can do. For a more elaborate and somewhat different account of perception, we can turn to Dignaga's mature treatise, The Collected Verses on the Sources of Knowledge. 
He opens the first chapter by distinguishing between two ways of apprehending the world, which he labels perception and inference. An alternative translation might be experience and reasoning. This, by the way, is not original with him. Already, Vasubandhu's brother Asanga had defined three sources of knowledge, namely perception, inference, and testimony. So Dignaga is just taking over this list and dropping the third item. The two remaining kinds of cognition, perception and inference, correspond respectively to the individual and the general, or as philosophers would say with their fancy names, to particulars and universals. Again, this may at first sound like common sense. There is on the one hand the particular white cloud, on the other the general or universal feature of whiteness that appears in this cloud, in that cloud, in an alarming number of the hairs on your head, and so on. Dignaga, however, insists that universals do not exist in nature, but only in our minds. Like the nominalists we've been discussing in the podcast on medieval philosophy, he thinks universals are mere concepts, and that everything real is a singular or individual item. Indeed, he takes it to be a straightforward contradiction that one universal could be in multiple instances, like the single whiteness in many clouds. So, certainly, we cannot perceive universals. As for what we can perceive, you might expect this to be, for example, one individual cloud, or perhaps the individual white color of a given cloud. But even to say this is to deploy the very universal concepts that are mere fantasies of the human mind, like white and cloud. Instead, Dignaga claims, the objects of perception are inexpressible or ineffable. Perhaps the closest we could come to imagining what he has in mind would be something like a perceived flash of color, or better, an entirely unclassified flash of visual awareness. Although, bearing in mind the critique of external objects we just discussed, such a flash of awareness is indeed something that is born in mind and not by any external objects. It is a particular, indefinable, and momentary object of experience within our mental life. So, that's perception. What about inference? Even though the universals are mental constructs, or perhaps we should say precisely because they are mental constructs, we are able to think about the relationship between concepts like color, whiteness, cloud, and giraffe. Thus, we could think that white things are colored, that some clouds look like giraffes, that giraffes are not white, and so on. This kind of thinking enables us to organize concepts into hierarchies like genera and species in the logic of Aristotle. The concept of giraffe falls under that of animal, the concept of white under that of color, and so on. As we'll see shortly, this is going to play an important role in Dignaga's theory of language. For now, though, we've learned that human thought is largely a matter of exploring the relationship between mentally constructed concepts. What lies under these constructions is not external objects, whether atoms or everyday things, but particular perceptions. Notice that Dignaga is not a radical skeptic who disavows all possibility of knowledge. To the contrary, he thinks we have immediate knowledge through perception, a direct and undistorted sensory acquaintance not contaminated by the fantasies of human imagination. To ensure this, he even stipulates that perception can never be in error. Everything that seems to be a case of perceptual error, such as seeing a rope as a snake or a crocodile as a giraffe, is put down to the distorting intervention of concepts. For this reason, he complains about the Nyaya definition of perception as cognition that arises from sense objects and is unerring and inexpressible. The definition is not so much wrong as redundant. 
all true cognition is perception, and it is always unerring and inexpressible. Of course, this fits nicely with Dignaga's argument that what we see is internal, not external. It is only when you are perceiving an external thing that the possibility of error arises, like when you see a rope and think it is a snake. For it is in these cases that there can be a mismatch between the object and the way it is perceived. Mistakes occur when concepts, which are necessarily general, are superimposed onto the data of perceptual experience, which is necessarily particular and unique. It follows that pure, unconceptualized perception is invariably error-free. Of course, Dignaga also thinks that if we were to see a rope and correctly classify it under the concept rope, that too would involve mental construction and not just immediate perception. This is not to say, though, that Dignaga is denying the reality of the rope or the reality of something or other out in the world. Instead, he simply brackets the question of whether there are any external things. As we saw, they cannot be the objects of perception in the sense of both causing the perception and matching it in form, so the knowledge we have through perception neither vindicates the existence of external things nor indicates that they do not exist. Perception is entirely internal to the perceiver. On both these points, Dignaga's great follower, Dharma Kirti, is going to offer a different opinion. He does reject the reality of external things, adopting an explicitly idealist theory where Dignaga's might more accurately be called phenomenalist, if we wanted to give it another fancy name. As for error, Dharma Kirti makes a subtle but crucial change by insisting that accurate perception must be not merely free from conceptual structure, but also free from illusion. Remember that for Dignaga, all perceptual experience is free from illusion. Damakirti instead thinks that there can be unconceptualized, but still erroneous, perceptual experience. He mentions three examples. If I suffer from jaundice, he says, I see objects with a yellow color that they do not actually have. The yellowness is a product of a defect in my vision and has nothing to do with the object. But this is not a case of conceptual construction, since defects of vision can affect even those who lack concepts, like small children and animals. Similarly, when I watch someone whirling a torch on the end of a piece of rope, all I see is a continuous circle of light. That too, thinks Damakiyoti, is a case of perceptual error that does not involve the misapplication of concepts. It is simply because human vision cannot distinguish the torch at each place on its circular trajectory. Damakirti's third case is one we have all experienced when a vehicle we are in begins to move, but it looks to us as if we are stationary and the world around is moving. Damakirti's example involves a boat, but the modern reader may more readily think of sitting in a train when there is another train on the adjacent platform. When your train moves off, it looks as if the other train has started to move in the opposite direction. Faithful podcast listeners may recall this sort of example, even using a boat, arising in a 14th century medieval philosophical debate. Again, Damakirti claims, this sort of perceptual error cannot be assimilated to any conceptual mishap, it's purely visual. So, Damakirti revises Dignaga's concept of perception with the extra clause. Unfortunately, this means that he can no longer locate all error at the conceptual level. The elegance and explanatory power of Dignaga's theory has been compromised, albeit in the quest for truth. The sort of nominalism espoused by Dignaga is confronted with an obvious objection. Language is full of references to universals, 
So if there are no universals, then how does language latch onto the world? He takes up this challenge with his customary brilliance. Before Dignaga, philosophers had given extensive thought to the meaning of words. Take that most Indian of examples, the word cow. None of us has difficulty understanding its meaning, despite the various ways it can be used. In a sentence like, the cow is standing, or bring me the cow, it appears to stand for a particular object, an individual cow. But in a sentence like, a cow is an animal, or a cow is shorter than a giraffe, it seems to stand for something else, perhaps a generic cow or the class of all particular cows. Again, in statements like, he's playing with cows, said of a child playing with toys, or this is a cow, said while pointing to a picture, it seems to stand for anything which has the shape or structure of a cow. The great Nyaya thinker Gautama concluded from such examples that the meaning of the term cow is a composite of all three uses. It takes in the individual cow, the cow shape, and the universal cowhood. Commenting on Gautama, Vatsyayana seems to interpret him as meaning that cow is systematically ambiguous. The word takes different meanings in different uses. The later Nyayakas, Udyotakara and Jayanta, give the sutra a different reading. They claim that an utterance of cow refers to an individual cow insofar as it is a possessor of the feature cowhood. In other words, the word cow has a deep logical form, meaning something like that thing being a cow, comprising a demonstrative and a predicate. So a sentence like the cow is white is true so long as the thing being picked out by the sentence is both a cow and is white. Dignaka replaces this complicated and rather confusing story with a simple and powerful analysis of words. His theory of the meaning of terms, given in the fifth chapter of his collected verses, draws on the hierarchical account of concept use we looked at earlier. In any hierarchy, concepts are organized by relations of containment and exclusion. Thus, the concept color contains the concept white, because anything that is red is also colored, while the concept white excludes the concept blue, meaning that nothing is both white and blue. What does this tell us about the meaning of words like white and color? The old answer was that the conceptual hierarchy corresponds to the hierarchy of things in nature. The world itself is organized in a certain way, and our conceptual classifications are not invented, but reflect that organization. As for individual words, they refer to things on the basis of the universals instantiated by those things. That thing up there is a cloud, because it is an instance of cloudness, not cowness. Dignaga has a different idea altogether. In what has come to be called the theory of exclusion, or apoha, he proposes that words do not need to correspond to anything external. Their meaning is determined merely by their location in the conceptual hierarchy. It's a bit like the way groups of people form identity by excluding outsiders. Someone might struggle to say what exactly it means to be British or American, while being all too ready to exclude other people from being properly British or American because they have the wrong religion, skin color, or accent. For Dignaga, this same sort of mechanism explains the meaning of everyday words. What exactly is a cloud? It is, if you'll pardon the expression, a rather nebulous idea, difficult to define in positive terms. There are many different shapes and colors of clouds. Clouds can be made up of either water or other vaporized substances, and so on. Dignaga would simply say that cloud gets its meaning through its relation to other terms. 
The concept of cloud includes other concepts, such as cumulus, nimbus, and cirrus, and is itself included by the concept of meteorological phenomena, while it excludes concepts such as giraffe, because even if there are giraffe-shaped clouds, no cloud is really a giraffe. Exclusion can also be used to explain compound expressions like white cloud. The difference between saying white cloud and merely saying cloud is that the first excludes more things than the second. The phrase white cloud excludes both things that are not clouds and things that are not white, whereas the word cloud excludes only things that are not clouds. A major advantage of Dignaga's Apoha theory is that it shows how he can do without real universals. When we apply the term cow, we are not saying that it instantiates some general feature found in the world. We are just discriminating a thing from what is dissimilar to it, that is, from whatever is not a cow. Universals are, in short, concealed double negations. To say that something is a cow is to say that it is not a non-cow. This is how language works, positioning concepts relative to one another. You might object that language doesn't always work that way. What about proper names like Bessie, Gina, and Hiawatha? Here, Dignaga's answer would be that we never apply such names to individual objects of perception. As we've seen, he thinks those cannot be expressed in language at all. The proper name of a certain cow, crocodile, or giraffe actually refers to a combination of many individual perceptions. So the name Bessie, or concept of Bessie, is just as much a conceptual construction as a universal like cow. And this exemplifies another advantage of Dignaga's theory of language. It meshes beautifully with his account of perception. His idea is that we never get a concept so fine-grained that it excludes everything except a single particular. Particulars are inexpressible in words and can only be directly perceived, while concepts and the words that express them, even proper names, always work at the level of mental construction. We move internally within that conceptual world when we observe that whatever is a cow is not a giraffe, even though both are animals or that if something is a white cloud, then it is a cloud. Such movements are the work of inference and reason. It's something else Dignaga has much to say about, as we'll see next time. So don't wander lonely as a cloud, but join us to wonder together at the stratospheric heights reached by Dignaga in logic, here on the History of Philosophy in India.